Yeah. As long as people can understand what folks are saying. Yeah. I, I figure, eh, whatever. It's part of the DIY fun of podcasting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it gives it some of that independent grit. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I feel like we should get started because like we're already talking about podcasting and stuff. Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to season four of Just Sustainability. In this episode of Just Sustainability, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce you to an old friend of mine, Dr. Jill Fellows. Jill teaches philosophy at Douglas College and is one of my favorite public philosophers. She's the host of two really terrific podcasts, one of which is Andraste's Gadfly, and the other is Gender, Sex, and Tech. She also recently published a terrific book, which is also named Gender, Sex, and Tech. She also seems to be routinely on various CBC media. For example, she's produced and hosted a show on CBC Radio and been on other shows talking about tech and speculating about Santa Claus. As you might have already guessed, Jill's scholarships focused on questions related to technology and gender. So given the current moment and all the conversations about AI, it's really cool to have Jill on the show. Such being the case, let's move on and let her introduce herself to you and tell us a bit about what she thinks about podcasting and public philosophy. I'll start as I always start, which is by just asking you, who are you? So who is Jill Fellows of the words of Jill Fellows? I know. What an intimidating question. <laughs> okay, so it's not meant to be intimidating. It's just, no, 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 I know. Right. It's just, uh, I want to give people the opportunity to to describe themselves in the ways that like, I think often folks don't get asked to, right? Particularly yeah. when you're, particularly like for folks who are academics and like, right, like whenever we get uh, uh, introduced or like the conventions for us introducing ourselves, we end up talking about our credentials and our research, not about who we are as people mm -hmm. and people engaging in like work that is often of personal interest. Yeah. And of course I am going to start with some credentials <laughs> 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 because it's been ingrained. Um, yeah. No. So I was looking, thinking about this question and, and one thing I appreciated about it is that it is the opportunity to not control the narrative of who I am, but to maybe uh -huh. have input into the narrative of who I am. <laughs> Which I really appreciate. Also, as somebody who used to work on like philosophy of identity and still kind of uh -huh. dabbles in in personal identity and stuff, I, I appreciate that as well. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, I will say for people who don't know, um, I am currently a philosophy instructor at a teaching institution, Douglas College, uh -huh. on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people of the Kakite Nation. Uh -huh. Um, and the institution focuses on undergraduate education, so we don't have a graduate student program. Uh -huh. And um, I also have a lot of research interests that are kind of, I, they're focused around philosophy of science, philosophy of technology, epistemology, um, all with a fairly feminist commitment, which I'm sure will come out in this interview. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I am a podcaster. Mm -hmm. I feel kind of uncomfortable calling myself that because there are people who've been in this much, much longer, like you've been in this longer than I have, but I feel like I can own that title now. So I'm gonna test it out today. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like I feel like I only have a few weeks. <laughs> I'm only a few weeks ahead of you. I don't know. I think you've got a bigger back catalog than I do. So <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, I started I started recording first, but I don't I think uh, our various podcasts. I think the first time you released a podcast was just like 
I think it was literally like two or three months after I released my first one because it took me. I I started recording way before I started actually producing. So I was just like, I'm doing this project. I'm going to just record people. I want to make sure I have enough. uh, um, Right, I have enough uh, material recorded so that when I start producing, I don't find myself like running out of material to like make into podcasts. Yeah. Uh, So I I think I did record first, but I think when it came to like releasing, we released like right. Like I think you did a. The, the Dragon Age podcast. Yeah, I'm going to talk think about that, that out, today. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that just came out just slightly after uh, just sustainability started coming out. So, yeah, I, I don't think yeah. I'm very much ahead of you. So, yeah, I have two podcasts um, that are in different stages of being on the go in some form. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll also share that I'm a not good guitar player, but I enjoy the music. And a mediocre mm-hmm. crocheter who likes to make blankets and scarves and stuff in the evening, especially in the winter when it's because I, I live on the West Coast and when it's rainy, uh-huh. curl up with a cup of tea and like make a blanket. I'm into it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, I never, I, I didn't know about the crocheting. Uh, I also am a mediocre crocheter who likes spending the cold months in Minnesota just sort of making uh, yarny things because it just feels like the cold months are time for making yarny things. Yeah. I'll put it away for months at a time, right? Like not touch it all yeah. through the summer. And then, you know, yeah. October comes around and you, you got to pull out your yarn bag and what was I working on last year? And yeah, I, I totally get that. Uh, <laughs> I have a, a, a blanket that I've been making out of like just random, like yarn scraps that I find at like thrift stores for like the last year, because I had ended up making so many mittens and like hats and scarves during a, it's nice to have a years. big project, right? That takes a yeah. while. I like that. And um, I guess I'll say, personally, I'm not a very visual person. I actually struggled for a while to like adopt PowerPoint because I was like, what am I going to put on this? Uh-huh. Um, and I've gotten there because I know a lot of students are visual learners. I'm not terribly visual. I'm much more auditory. And I love uh-huh. storytelling and thinking about voice and embodiment. And I try to come to a lot of this stuff with as intersectional a lens as I can, which hopefully is what we'll do today too. Hopefully. Uh, yeah. No, no, I just had super random thought. Like I wonder how, because we we like the way we approach things, I think, and the way we think about things and like a lot of the stuff we do seems very similar. And I'm just like, I wonder if this is because we were like, wait, like kind of our formative, like educational years, we were educated the same place. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah i'm also a clements grad student buddy <laughs> from the master from our master's programs well not, not just grad student like we did uh undergrad together too. oh yeah we did do undergrad together I yeah forgot. we did undergrad and like kind of our master's together so like our we we spent yeah like six years of our formative years like kind of being educated by the same people well no like, i transferred to the university oh. of calgary in my third year so it was like four years together not six okay <laughs> Yeah, would have yes. I was trying to remember when we met. Yeah, I guess you. Yeah, you weren't. I yes, you were already. Yeah, you came into the third year. Yeah, yeah. This was a very long time ago. What? No, no, we didn't share our office. Did we share? No, no I had the office, office with the bat above the door, the weird rubber bat. Yes. And I don't think that was your office. No, I had the office with the the orange couch. Right. Yeah. The ugly orange couch. Uh, I love that all the offices had ugly, comfy furniture. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, I napped a lot on that couch. <laughs> yeah. I had like, I think it was like a mustard colored love seat in our office. Mm-hmm. 
And it was also absolutely lovely and really uh-huh. kind of gross looking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ugly but comfortable. Which yeah, you know, really I, I, comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. I, I think that should be more of a thing when it comes to institutional furniture. Like it's okay for it to be ugly. It just should be comfortable. It just needs to be really, really comfy. And in fact, yeah. ugly might be better because then people won't like try and take it. Yes. <laughs> but yes, the twelfth floor of the social sciences tower. Yeah. Hanging out there. Maybe that is where where we got some of our approach to philosophy and approach to research in general. Yeah. Shout out to University of Calgary. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I got to keep moving my mouse. I forgot that uh, I'm not, so I normally I normally record at home, but I'm recording in my office today and uh my home computer is set so that uh, it just stays awake whenever I'm doing stuff, but I don't think the same with my <laughs> office computer because it just tried to like go to sleep on me. I'm like, "Oh no." <laughs> oh, no. <Speaking laughs> but, <of> technology. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I I got to remember to keep my wiggling my mouse. Okay. Um, yes. Um. Yeah. So uh, thank you for saying a little bit of, about yourself. Uh, was there anything else? Because I felt like I cut you off a few times. I think this is one problem with like kind of like what like twenty something years of familiarity. Yeah. I, I think I might be more inclined to like just sort of jump in because like oh I heard this like you know. No, I think it's good. Back in the day, we're interviewing okay. and catching up at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the things I really like about podcasting is it gives me excuses to talk to old friends because I'm like a terrible introvert and I never like kind of without prompting think to like cold call someone like, Hey, I've talked for a long time. Like, how are you doing? Yeah. But, uh, this gives me excuse to do some of that. So like from time to time. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, since we're talking about like podcasting and talking about, you know, catching up while podcasting, uh, and because in your intro, you mentioned that you were a podcaster. <laughs> I think more, more broadly, you think a lot about public philosophy and thinking about podcasts as a way to um, engage in public philosophy, right? To engage non-professional philosophers in the, the conversations that happen with professional philosophers often. So I, I guess, I mean, I, I'd like to ask you a little bit about that, right? So like, uh, when it comes to public philosophy, what sorts of things are you trying to accomplish? Like what kind of objectives do you have when you're engaging in public philosophy? Maybe as a, a way to just sort of start talking about it. Yeah. So we mentioned the first podcast that I launched myself, which was uh-huh. Andraste's Gadfly that I launched with my colleague, uh, Dr. Kira, Kira Thompson. Uh-huh. And it's a Dragon Age and philosophy podcast where we geek out about video games and apply yes. philosophical concepts to Dragon Age. Um, Which is terrific. <laughs> thank you. We haven't we we were on hiatus for a little bit, um, but I am editing another episode now. But that one, if I'm totally honest, the objective of that one uh-huh. was basically to do something for me. <laughs> yeah. So the objective was to have fun and make something for myself, practice the skills of podcasting, kind of dip my toes into public philosophy and hopefully not suck too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been so much fun. But it is it is a labor of love that Kira and I do basically for, for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And if other people enjoy it, and some other people seem to enjoy it, like that's wonderful. <laughs> um, from there, the second podcast that I, I launched last year is called Gender, Sex, and Tech, Continuing the Conversation. Uh-huh. And that one I had maybe more of a specific goal for. Okay, That one was about engaging the public about something that I think is really important and that I don't have a sense that a lot of people are thinking about. Um, so I wanted to talk about 
various technologies from a feminist intersectional lens uh-huh. and look at the ways in which technologies can reinforce biases that already exist in society uh-huh. um, or in the ways in which technologies can be used kind of for liberatory or progressive purposes. Uh-huh. And so I was trying to create this kind of open space for people to think about this stuff, for us to share social science and humanities tools. It's an interdisciplinary podcast Uh. and provide an open access educational resource to give people the opportunity to explore this kind of stuff. Uh There's another reason. Oh, sorry. Finish and then I have a question I wanted to ask you. There's there's another reason that I wanted to launch the Gender, Sex and Tech podcast, and that's as the huh. title suggests, a lot of this philo- is about technology, and actually a lot of my current philosophical research is philosophy of technology. Uh-huh. And something we probably all know is that technology changes really quickly, uh-huh. and the field moves really, really fast, and academic publishing is really, really slow. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, super slow. <laughs> super slow. <laughs> And as a result, I found that like a lot of the articles I was reading in philosophy of technology, and they're they're touching on important points, but they're already like two years out of date. In some ways, I saw making the podcast and doing public philosophy as a way to try and stay more current and to intervene and prompt ethical questions and philosophical questions about what's happening right now as it is happening uh-huh. rather than like after it happens. <laughs> yeah. No, th- I, yes, I agree. So, um, right. So this podcast is also just for me, mostly at labor of love, but, uh, right. I'm just wanting to, I'm just having conversations that I kind of wanted to hear, but like tend to get filtered out by academic publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, uh, I recognize, right. Like the use of like podcasts as a way to like circumvent some of the limitations of academic publishing, uh, as being, a, a strong motivator. Um, that wasn't what I wanted to ask you about though. What I wanted to ask you about was audience. So right, um, you talked about wanting to create like a, like to drive some of the discourse about gender technology and having more interdisciplinary discourse. So I'm just kind of curious, how do you think about audience? Are you thinking about like, so when you're thinking about the podcast, so when you're thinking about like sex and gender, pod, the sex and gender podcast, who are you thinking about when you're, recording the conversations like mm-hmm. right who, who like right like how, i mean i guess there's two questions the question one is uh how sort of intentional are you about framing things in certain ways for a particular audience or do you right like i guess right you, one could be very sort of intentional like here's this audience and i'm gonna like right have this sort of discourse using this sort of vocabulary for mm-hmm. that audience or is it just like you are you doing something more of just sort of like having more organic conversations as depending on like sort of the right, like thinking about like what sorts of conversations that you would find interesting yeah, and then assuming that, well, maybe not assuming, but like, you know, like, I guess, yeah. right. Like, right. Thinking that there's an audience of, uh, of people who, who want to have the, who want to like listen and learn about the same things that you do. I, right, I, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So how do you just kind of more broadly think about audience? So, When I was recording Gender, Sex, and Tech the first season last year, there are a couple of things that I was thinking of. The first thing is that it is geared towards an audience that I think is already pretty feminist Mm -hmm. um, and already pretty progressive leaning. So there are some things that we don't spend a whole lot of time defending. Sure. Um, There are episodes in the podcast that talk about things like 
the way in which social sorting can be used to try and identify people more likely to uh, reoffend mm. and how this disproportionately often harms um, black and indigenous people right because of biases that are built into the system and we don't spend a whole lot of time kind of unpacking the idea that society at large is already pretty sexist and racist and patriarchal and white supremacist and stuff like that right um because the audience that we're geared towards already kind of accepts those starting premises and so sure. we kind of build from there to talk about what's going on in digital space uh-huh. Not always digital. The The podcast looks at technologies more broadly, but quite often digital. Uh-huh. Um, so that's kind of one thing I was thinking about. But I, in addition to thinking that the audience is already, that the audience that we're targeting is already pretty feminist and left-leaning, uh-huh. I also wanted to try and make sure that the audience could be quite wide because the podcast is interdisciplinary. So we, I've interviewed um, anthropologists, psychologists, communications sociology, uh-huh. um, criminology, philosophy, English lit, like it's, it's social sciences and humanities writ pretty large at this point. Uh-huh. And so I wanted to make sure that you didn't have to be deep within any of those academic traditions to understand what's going on. Right. So, okay. Yeah. We try to keep the jargon pretty light, not depend on a lot of jargon. And if we do use jargon, we unpack it and explain it. Um, and this is where I kind of pick up again from my colleague, Kira. She's been a great inspiration. <laughs> she has this thing where she says, if it's worth saying, it's worth saying in plain language. <laughs> right. And I mean, that may not always be true. Sometimes you need jargon. But I think that a lot of the time you can find ways to unpack ideas without using a lot of like academic ease language, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. And I think that when you're working in an interdisciplinary space, that's both good for your audience so that they don't have to have, say, a background, a deep background in philosophy or a deep background in sociology. Uh-huh. But it's also like been really good for me. Like I've learned a ton from my colleagues in other disciplines because they have to explain uh-huh. their concepts to me. And then I'm like, oh, so I feel like that kind of has gone hand in hand. No, no, it makes perfect sense. And it also seems to me that like, right, forcing yourself to not use shorthand when you're referring to things makes you have to be clearer, right? internally about like what your ideas are right it's really easy yeah to you know to right to kind of recite the jargon that's common in the field but then you're not being really thoughtful about what you're actually referring to mm-hmm. trying to explain it in a way that's you know comprehensible to someone who doesn't know the jargon and who has it doesn't have the same sort of assumptions or like disciplinary background I, I think forces a person to like really think through what that idea is that one is trying to express Yeah. And I think that's been really helpful, both for me, like I've learned a lot and I feel more comfortable in it in an interdisciplinary space because of that. But I also Uh think it's allowed the podcast to be a lot more accessible. Uh Um, So yeah, Yeah. that's, that's been really helpful as a kind of guiding principle about thinking about my audience. Well, and it's also kind of an interestingly feminist one, because like when you're describing that, it made me think of uh, Karen Warren's book, Ecofeminist Ethics, where She's kind of outlining the, she's just, this is the part where she's talking about like the pluralism of ecofeminism and then trying to, to like define, right? How do you determine what's ecofeminist and what's not? And she talks about ecofeminism being sort of a quilt, right? There's a border of kind of shared, uh, right? Values and 
kind of basic principles and assumptions. But within that border, right, there's all sorts of different squares and they could be all sorts of different shapes and colors, right? They, they, there's many ways to manifest that broad set of kind of common assumptions and values, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I think when you're thinking about audience, uh, I think your common sort of values are like, right, that uh, folks care about equity and social justice and broadly think that feminist lenses are ways of thinking about that. Um, and then, right, start from there. Yeah. And then we kind of build concepts in each episode as people felt that they needed to reach for things to help explain stuff. Uh-huh. And then we unpack, okay, so what are the concepts and how do they work and why are they helpful when thinking about like online dating or when thinking uh-huh. about a certain video game? There is an episode on a video game and stuff like that. So, <laughs> I mean, this, this invites a question, right? Like, so, Right, you said a little bit about the audience. Think about like what you're like, kind of how you think about content. I mean, I guess the, the the natural question that pops into my head is: given those sort of considerations, how how do you think about like doing it well, right? Like, so like having an audience that like, or right, because you're you're thinking about how do you have kind of a broad audience that right that's thinking about these issues from a certain perspective and that you're, you're trying to be accessible and you're trying to have robust conversations about gender and technology that are timely and that are useful for folks thinking through these problems. What does like, what does that look like when it's successful? Like when, like, what are your episodes that you're like, yeah, I totally nailed that. Or like, (laughs) or like, maybe not the episode, but like what type of like, I guess maybe, uptake or the ways that people interact with your episodes that make you think like, yes, that's exactly what I was hoping to happen. Right. I think there are kind of two things that have been three things maybe that have been really, really cool that have happened with the audience listening. Yeah. So one is people telling me that they're recommending that like their grandparents listen to it. Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm like, yes. (laughs) So often our audience tends to be kind of Gen Z age. Yes. Right. Um, and so hearing people sharing it intergenerationally, I think, is amazing because we often think of technologies as being kind of, I don't know, a, a young person thing. Uh-huh. Um, but I do think it's kind of important for everybody to understand what's happening uh-huh. in terms of the ways in which technologies are being deployed, both for exploitation, but also for resistance. And so uh-huh. hearing people say, like, I shared it with my aunt or I shared it with my grandmother is just amazing. <laughs> And I love that, Uh that somebody found it valuable enough that they wanted to share it with other people, particularly people um, in other generations who, you know, if if you're a grandparent right now, if you're that age, if you're like, what, like late boomer age, you may never have done any online dating, for example. Uh And so kind of learning about this stuff can be really helpful to help like bridge generational divides. So that's been really cool. Uh Um, I've also had... People just reach out um, and say that the concepts themselves were useful, that when we unpacked a concept, Uh like um, when we discussed um, biopower or biopedagogy, Uh people found this helpful and that they could use these concepts to understand other things um, and other technological tools that aren't even discussed in the podcast. And that is uh, awesome. That's cool. But maybe my favorite is like when people push back a little bit and they're like, okay, but what about this? Right. Like, right. 
um, that they're testing the ideas. I really, really appreciate. There haven't been a ton of those interactions. Maybe my audience is very polite at the moment, but <laughs> I really like when that happens. Like, obviously, you can always have people who are criticizing for criticism's sake. Uh-huh. But when you have people who are meaningfully engaging with what you've said uh-huh. and they're testing it and pushing back, yeah, I've I've really enjoyed those interactions. They mostly happen on Twitter, and it's been awesome. No, I, I, I agree. So, like, uh, with particularly that that last point, right? That uh, right, I, I share that some that sentiment, right? I think when folks just sort of agree with me, I'm like, oh, that's great, and I'm like, yeah, that's nice that you'll enjoy it. But the the ones that I, I really the sort of interactions I really appreciate are when folks right explain to me something that I missed or something that I might yeah. think about that, like because I, I mean, right? Like, I, I often release, you know, like when I engaging in sort of academic discourse, like either through publishing or through podcasts, what I'm hoping to do is to invite people to help me look for my blind spots, right? I mm-hmm. assume that I'm wrong about something, but I'm never going to find out about it until like I sort of like send out like a, a, a test idea and see mm-hmm. what people think about it. And so when people kind of come back at me and be like, you know, have you thought about this? That's when I'm like, huh, no, I had not. <laughs> I should. Yeah. And it's great. And, it reminds me, um, one of my colleagues, she does a lot of public scholarship, mm-hmm. um, Dr. Brenna Clark Gray, who works at Thompson Rivers University. Okay. She calls public scholarship like making mistakes in public, public mistakes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that idea. And it's also it's also a way of having kind of a record of the thought process, right? So you make a public mistake, mm-hmm. somebody responds to you and says, well, what about this? Or okay, I liked what you said, but you didn't completely unpack this, or you haven't uh-huh. thought of this potential counterexample. How does that affect what you said? And it's it's a way of like showing what a thought process looks like in public as you engage with yeah. people and refine your ideas or maybe scrap them entirely. Yeah. And I, I kind of like the record of public mistakes. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it forces one to show one's work. Yeah. Right? I mean, it not just forces, it just is the process of showing one's work, which I think gets taken out of academic publishing, right? So like, totally. right, like sometimes I think when I get, so I mean, not always, because right, there's always reviewer number two. Uh, <laughs> and, but like, I have to find, like when I'm engaging in uh, academic publishing and I get like reviewer comments, I, I have to think like, you know, it'd be sweet if we could just, if we could like had attached these in the appendix. Cause like, I think there's something really rich here, right? Like if someone yeah. could read the original draft and the response from the, the reviewer and then like see how I respond to that. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's something the to be learned. The reviewer has often done so much work and it's all invisible. Mm-hmm. Like, like a good reviewer, not reviewer two, right? That we all complain yeah. about this archetype of reviewer two, but like a good reviewer that's really meaningfully, thoughtfully engaged with your work. Mm-hmm. Like, and then who sees it? You see it and the editor sees it. And that's the only audience for that. And it's bizarre. <laughs> yeah. No. And, and I and I, I, I think it also gives the false impression for a lot of folks that uh, that scholarship is in some way static, right? Mm-hmm. That, uh, that Right. So like, it seems to me, right, like that scholarship is discursive, right? Like research doesn't happen in isolation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a conversation between a community of folks thinking through a common problem. Yeah. People are, are right. Uh, like publications often are, are just ways folks are responding to one another, responding to other work. And I, and I, I think that's not 
always evident. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think for the I mean, there's a deeper problem where like academic publications I think aren't actually accessible to most folks, so most of yeah. folks have no idea what's going on. But even when folks have access to it, because I sometimes see this with my students, right? Because I try to drill into my students' heads that look when you're reading something, read it as if it's a letter to you and that you're responding to it, right? Don't read it as like you know, you're, you're reading a definitive work or something. Yeah. 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 Right. Don't read it like a novel, right? Like this is not like a story that's sort of captured in time in Amber. It's right. It's, it's think of it as a, a, right. Someone's contribution to a debate or a conversation and that you should be reading it with that mindset that you you're supposed to be, someone is trying to convince you of something. And if you agree with it, think about like what you agree with and like, what would, how would you respond in an agreement. Mm-hmm. And if you disagree with it, well, how would you respond in disagreement? Mm-hmm. Um, don't, don't think of it as just like something passive for that, that, you know, you're supposed to take it and then you sort of like sit into like a little pocket of your brain somewhere. It's, you it should be yeah. interacting with like a live conversation. When public scholarship works, I think that's my favorite part. Cause you're not, you're not doing scholarship at the public anymore. You're doing it uh-huh. with the public. Right. And people, uh-huh. People have their own ideas and their own thoughts, and you get to have these conversations and see these perspectives that, you know, I might not have seen before if I hadn't uh-huh. put this episode out into the world and seen what people thought. Uh-huh. So, what? And even what the the less public part, right? Like with the interactions with, particularly like right, like the the formats that uh, of our two podcasts where we're talking to other folks. Mm-hmm. There's also that, that discursive part about like with our, our colleagues, with other folks who are working in the area and then actually having a live conversation with them about the topics that, yeah. you know, often we have in and writing. something in those... really playful about that too. Yeah. Like um, in one episode, I was interviewing Dr. Noreen Manji about her work on smartphones and mm-hmm. um, couples and how, mm-hmm couples tend to use smartphones to maintain their relationships. And while we were talking about that, it super reminded me of the extended theory of mind from um, Mm -hmm. Clark and Chalmers in philosophy Mm -hmm. of mind, which is this idea that like you extend parts of your mental functioning into devices, like you offload Mm -hmm. mental tasks onto devices. Mm -hmm. And they were writing that before there was a smartphone. (laughs) Like that was 1996. Yeah. And so we started talking about this and she'd never heard of it. And it was just this kind of cool bringing together some stuff from my discipline with some stuff from she's in communications and kind of playing with ideas and we didn't come up with anything fully formed, but I put it all out there in the podcast. Like here's, here's what happened, right? Here's the ideas we started playing with while we were talking about this stuff. And there's something kind of really spontaneous and organic about that, which is very, very fun to capture. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And this makes me think, right? Like, so when I'm thinking about like what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to do is capture those like really cool moments uh, at, academic conferences when you know a bunch of people are skipping out on the talk and like hanging out in a like a bar in like <laughs> right new orleans and you're just shooting the shit like with yeah. like you know some of your friends and then someone talks about right because like we're all nerds in the same way talk you just ends up talking shop and then like you spend like three hours just chatting about some random right uh, some random ac- yeah academic topic totally and, and while you should be actually right preparing for your talk the next day <laughs> but right like I find that it's those informal conversations that have kind of shaped my scholarship the most, right? Like mm-hmm. um, I steal from those a lot and then mm-hmm. just find citations that like cover kind of the, some of the background topics. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's still one that I rely on quite regularly from a talk with um, Heidi Graswick, Dr. Heidi Graswick, a, um, a philosopher yeah. of science. And and she hasn't published it anywhere because I keep emailing her and I'm like, where can I cite this? And she's like, sorry, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> I'm like, but it's yeah. so influential on me. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, there's yeah there's so many so yeah there's so much more work that is just influenced from like incidental conversations i had with someone at the right like some random time when i was skipping out from something else and just hanging out yeah we've reached a good spot in the conversation to end this episode so far jill and i have talked about how she approaches creating her podcasts and her experiences being public philosophers we talked about how we approach sharing academic discourse in ways that we hope makes it more accessible and the benefits of public scholarship in terms of organically leading to more transparent and robust work. Next episode, we'll return to Jill sharing with me about her process in regards to podcasting and public philosophy, and then move on to start learning about the relationship between gender and technology. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, Please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.